You can turn to Luke chapter 15, if you haven't already done that. Luke chapter 15, I think there's been three weeks, six sermons on Luke chapter 15 so far. You should be thankful, my name isn't Benjamin Keach, because he had like 30 sermons on the first seven verses or something like that. Much fewer sermons by Mr. Keach on verses 8 through 10 of chapter 15, and that's where, where we'll be. Or, that's an interesting word, by the way, or what woman, have, we'll highlight that word later, or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, if you've been here, most of you have for most of those sermons, or at least half of them, you can hear in Luke 15, 8 through 10, some Themes that are already in Luke 4 through 7. You remember, he spoke this parable to them. And I have tried to argue that this entire section from verse 4 to the end of the chapter is actually one parable with, we might call, three parts or three acts. Acts, Act 1, a shepherd finds a lost sheep. Act 2, a woman finds a lost coin. Act 3, a man, a father, finds a lost son. They're all related, they're all connected, and you've probably seen more connections than I just mentioned. This is what's called a parable. Now, a parable is a storytelling device used by our Lord, and there are other parables in Scripture. They, are, they illustrate truth to the people whom he spoke, to whom he spoke, and any others who hear or read his words. So this is a These are figures of speech. A woman isn't a literal woman, just like the man or the shepherd in in, in the first part of the parable isn't a literal shepherd. It signifies the Lord Jesus. The lost sheep in the first part isn't a literal lost sheep. It signifies a lost sinner. Okay, so you see how that happens. So we have the same thing happening here. Jesus is using... First century cultural buzzwords that the people that heard him could easily connect it with the the literal understanding of it, but he doesn't mean it literally. He means it metaphorically, and a string of metaphors by all the old my old favorite writers is called an allegory. Ah, oops. What is an allegory? It's a string of metaphors intended to signify not the literal thing itself, but something other signified by the literal thing. Okay. Everybody repeat that, please. Jesus said, I am the vine. You ever heard the John Gershner thing? Martin Luther. This is my body. I heard it many years ago. Jesus didn't mean by that. Literally, it's a figure of speech. He also said, I am the vine. You don't pick grapes off of him. I am the door. He doesn't have hinges and a handle and a keyhole. These are metaphors, okay? That's 
Mr. Gershner for you. So when he says, I am the vine, he wasn't claiming to be a literal vine, though he was using a literal vine to teach something about himself. Right? Now, in order to understand parables, like the one we're in, in order to understand, excuse me, what Jesus is getting at when he speaks parabolically, we must enter into the first, uh, into the culture of the first century, at least a little. Now, I don't want to do it too much, but we have to do it a little because he is using signs from the first century to signify something else. And whatever the something else is, it's being signified by the literal sign. Sweeping, candle, woman, coins, coin, lost, found, friends, neighbors, you know, all that stuff. So he uses first, cultural, first century cultural terms, like 10 silver coins. To us, we're going, okay. A, a lamp. Well, we might have a lamp, but not like this lamp. Sweep the house. My grandson can sweep the house by pressing the button on that round thing that goes around, that robot. And he does it, and he gets slapped every time he does that. Even woman, in, in our passage, verses 8 through 10, is culturally conditioned. But Jesus was also a master of all theologians, and he knew his Hebrew Bible well. And Jesus' words throughout Luke 15 reflect his knowledge of the Old Testament. Okay, so we don't just go to the culture and say this means this. We go to the culture in light of the previous written word of God. Because Jesus uses things from the Old Testament and and deliver some zingers toward the scribes and Pharisees. So we have to get into the cultural world of the first century and the Old Testament, and I'm going to say this, and the New Testament to help us understand what Jesus means here. Because when we get the parable right, we're going to find echoes of the parable properly understood in the subsequent apostolic writings, in the Acts and the Epistles. Like darkness and light? There's darkness and light here. Why'd you have to turn a candle on? Because it was dark. When Paul describes Christian salvation, this side of the sufferings and glory of Christ, he often uses darkness and light metaphors. Where did he get those from? Jesus and the Old Testament. This takes some work, obviously, and you've hired me to do the work necessary to understand the parables. I think it's very rewarding to do the cultural analysis briefly and then try to make the connections uh, from the rest of Scripture. So as we work our way through Luke 15, 8 through 10 this morning, we'll keep an eye out <clears throat> for cultural connections to the first century and primarily for theological connections to the Old Testament and elsewhere in Scripture. And I think we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. It illumines it for us. It makes it clearer. It makes it uh, more plain. Now, you remember what happened here. Uh, then all the tax collectors, verse 1, and the sinners drew near to him, to Jesus, to hear him. So tax collectors and sinners, collaborators, um, Jews who were working for the hated Roman government and collecting not only appropriate taxes, but above and beyond what they should, and sinners, just regular Jews that the Pharisees and scribes who were the religious teachers and leaders looked down their noses at. 
And it says, and the Pharisees, verse 2, and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Notice they didn't say, this man teaches publicly. They already know he taught publicly. He was a known rabbi by this time, uh, by both friend and foe. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, they drew near to him to hear him. The complaint was, who he's with. This man receives sinners and eat with them, eats with them. Just think of, just think of uh, if the next verse said, and Jesus repented of that sin. Oh, we'd be in big trouble, right? Jesus sinned by being with uh, receiving sinners and eating with them. If he doesn't do that. I'm left in my sin. So he was doing the very thing he came to do, and that's what they're murmuring about. That's what they're grumbling about. That's what they're complaining about. Notice in verse 2, the plot thickens. The Pharisees and the scribes are mentioned. Uh, Both groups exalted themselves, looked down their nose at others. Their complaint was this man receives sinners and eats with them. Uh, Notice they didn't ask a question of Jesus. They made a statement. Right? They don't say, hey, Jesus, why are you doing this? If we were there, I think we could probably see this being aimed at the tax collectors and sinners. Look what the guy that receives you, look what he's doing. Okay? Luke tells us how Jesus responded, so he spoke this parable to them, saying, now, I've shown before that the audience there is... Many tax collectors and sinners, we don't know how many. Some Pharisees and scribes, religious teachers and leaders. The disciples, because verse chapter, verse 1 of chapter 16 says, and he said to his disciples, so the disciples are there as well. He spoke this parable to them, primarily aiming the, the oomph parts of it to, at the Pharisees and scribes. But there's something to learn by believing tax collectors and believing sinners and believing disciples of all ages. There are three stories here. Uh, Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. By the way, a lost sheep which was found, a lost coin which was found, and a lost son which was found. And they all tell one parable from three angles, all aimed primarily at the Pharisees and scribes, Speaking about Luke 15, 8 through 10, the one with the lost coin, uh, Benjamin Keach, our friend from the 18th century, says, My brethren, so he's addressing his church, My brethren, it is worth your consideration to note that our blessed Savior is very intent upon the main or chief matter contained in the former part of the parable, namely, of the lost sheep. So he says, verses 8 through 10 are similar to verses 4 and 7. Whatever the main point of verses 4 through 7 is, the main, it's the main point of verses 8 through 10. He says, in that, he seconds it, he seconds the first part, with this, of this lost piece of money. Nay, the third time he confirms it in the lost son. See what he's saying? The three acts of the one parable are getting across the same major point. He later says, that our Lord told this part of the parable to illustrate further 
the state of lost sinners. See what he just did? The first part illustrates the state of lost sinners. The second part, verses 8 through 10, further illustrates it, goes a little deeper in depicting the lostness of sinners. John Gill, not long after Benjamin Keith says, he told this part of the parable with the same view as the former. The scope and design of them are alike being occasioned by the same circumstance. Only the passiveness of a sinner in conversion is here more fully signified. See what he just did? Same thing Mr. Keats says. It's the same major point, but here he's illustrating, using the cultural connections, uh, further the lost estate of all elect sinners and all non-elect sinners of all sinners. He continues, who, who can contribute, sinners that is, they, who can contribute no more to the first act of conversion, which is purely God's work, than a lost coin to its being found. I think Gill's right. What could a lost coin contribute to, to its foundness? I almost said foundedness. Nothing. It's passive, right? She found it. It was found. An action by an outside agent caused the coin to be found. The coin didn't cause itself to be found. This is an illustration of divine grace, sovereignty. So let's look at uh, these verses, 8 through 10. Um, first of all, some introductory observations on its structure and content. Okay, we're kind of looking at the larger picture now. Notice the pattern we've seen before. Lost in verse 8, found in verses 8 in the beginning of 9, rejoice, the end of verse 9, found at the end of verse 9, lost way at the end of verse 9. So we have lost, found, rejoice, found, lost. See that? We saw that in the previous section too. You had the same pattern. And what's right in the middle? Lost, lost, found, found, Rejoice. You think that's probably important? Remember that thing I told you, that rhetorical device, a word device with words, where you put the most important thing, the thing you're really trying to get across right in the middle of your section, and you, you, you surround it with, with similar points. So we have rejoice in the middle, found, and then lost. So rejoice with me is pretty important in this context. Rejoicing is right in the middle again. The Pharisees and scribes were bitter complaining about bitter complainers about what Jesus was doing, but they should not have been. Now notice secondly something about our text. Notice the word or. I mentioned this before. This connects this story with the previous one. Now watch how we can do this just by reading. Verse 4, what man of you, dot, 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 or what woman, see, there's a connection here, right? Let me tell the parable this way. If that's not good enough, let me tell the parable this way, okay? Notice also the fact that Jesus uses a woman in this part of the parable, just as using a shepherd in verses 4 through 7 did not make Jesus out to be a literal sheep herder with literal sheep. 
so here as well. Jesus is simply using a word in a metaphorical manner. The word woman signifies the female gender, but this woman signifies something other than herself in the story. He is not a literal woman. His mission on the earth can be likened unto a woman, however, who lost a coin, found it, and rejoiced with others. We'll see how he makes those connections. You might struggle with this. What Jesus is signified, signifying himself by a woman? That's just weird. In Luke 13, 34, Jesus likens himself to a hen who gathers her brood under her wing. Some of you know that, right? But this does not mean he is claiming that he has feathers and a beak, right? I mean, somebody's laughing up here in the front because that's, it's like, no, it's obvious when you read Luke in context, it's a figure of speech. In the Old Testament, God's actions are sometimes likened unto that of a woman. There's several places we could go. But in Isaiah 42, which is actually a messianic context, well, just listen to verse 14. It's kind of a weird verse. I have held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself, capital M. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. God is free, and he does, to use creatures, here a woman, to signify something about his actions. By the way, Psalm, or Proverbs 8 and 9 Identify wisdom as a female. Wisdom is said to have built her house. And in the New Testament, who is called the wisdom of God? And the word wisdom is in the feminine, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Christ is called the wisdom of God. Sophia is the word. The word wisdom, being feminine, is a sign signifying something about our Lord. And I think this passage presents Jesus as being like a good shepherd, not a literal good shepherd, like a good woman, not a literal good woman, and like a good father, not a literal good father. Commenting on the woman in our text, Keach again says, the woman here no doubt signifies the same person mentioned in the foregoing parable that had the hundred sheep, which we have proved refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is often in the scriptures set forth by the feminine gender by the name of wisdom. Okay, so hopefully it's beyond all doubt. All right, I might not like it, but Jesus did it, so I got to deal with it. It doesn't, it's not like Jesus said it. I believe it, therefore it's settled. Jesus said it, it's settled. Are you going to believe it or not? Notice also that like verse 4, Jesus starts with a question in verse 8. What man among you? What woman? Or what woman? He gives a brief commentary of the situation in verse 9, and then he draws a conclusion. So question, commentary, conclusion. That is the outline for my sermon. Jesus' question. Or what woman? Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. So we have at least five, six things here. We have a woman, one. 
Number two, we have a woman who has 10 coins. Number three, we have a woman who has 10 coins but loses one. Number four, we have a woman who has 10 coins but loses one and lights a lamp. Number five, we have a woman who has 10 coins but loses one, lights a lamp, and sweeps the house. And then number six, we have a woman who has 10 coins, who loses one, who lights a lamp, who sweeps the house, and finds the coin. So if I was preaching real pedantically, I'd have six points now. I'm going to just try to explain kind of them all together. So remember, I already said, we got to get into the culture at least a little, and then we need to get into the rest of Scripture to help us understand this. So what are the cultural kind of connections Jesus is making with the first century? Now, the picture painted by Jesus would have been familiar to the Pharisees and scribes and to anybody who heard them. A woman with ten coins, ten days' labor most likely, lost one of them in her house. And the houses then were on the main, were about as large as one car, a one-car garage. Windows were only about six inches, however many inches six inches is, and about seven feet above the ground, above the floor. Floors were made with often black stones, and the ceilings utilized the same black material. So these homes were dark inside. The floors had cracks between the stones filled with dirt and other materials over time. A woman who lost something of value, like a coin, a day's wage, would have carefully sought after it with diligence, though with no assurance that she would find it. Lighting a lamp was necessary due to the darkness. Sweeping the house would not have taken long and would have been an attempt to gather the coin or make sure it went into the cracks in the floor from which it could be extracted later. This is old, I don't know when I wrote this. I'm probably borrowing from somebody and don't realize it. But let me make an explicit quote now of somebody. So the picture that would have formed in the minds of at least some of Jesus' audience is that of a woman in a small room with floor, walls, floor, and ceiling of black. The windows are very small and placed above eye level. She has dropped a small silver coin between the wide cracks in the irregular stone floor. It is little wonder that the parable reports the lighting of a lamp, the sweeping of the house, and a diligent search. So that's kind of the cultural connection. Everybody wake up now. That stuff can be a yawner. I know it's fascinating sometimes, but what's interesting about trying to make overdo the cultural connections is a lot of the information... Well, all the information we have about the culture of the first century outside the Bible, none of it is infallible, inspired word of God. All of it was found over time progressively through archaeological discoveries. Some of the archaeological discoveries made later debunked of an earlier theory about something. Okay, so we've got, we got to be careful with background material. Uh, we don't want to make it absolutely essential for the true understanding of the Word of God. When we seek to understand the Word of God, the first place we should go to understand the Word of God is the Word of God, right? Not first century stone room. So our most important um, 
approach now would be our theological approach. Okay, we made the cultural connections. What are the theological connections with the Old Testament and other scripture? Note this, the fact that Jesus likens himself to a woman seeking something of value after likening himself to a shepherd who seeks and find a lost sheep would have kept the lessons of the shepherd metaphor in the minds of his hearers. Or, remember, so if you're hearing and you're getting what Jesus says, he's, he's making a second approach to the very thing he just illustrated by the lost sheep. And remember, all the connections, it took me six sermons to go through verses one through seven, primarily verses four through seven, showing you the connections, the background, not outside the Bible and first century archeological discoveries, but inside the Bible itself and in the minds of his audience, primarily the Pharisees and scribe. And Jesus borrowed the shepherd metaphor from where? The Old Testament, right? Where is he borrowing the woman metaphor from? I think the Old Testament as well. Now the links with the Old Testament, I think become clear as we consider that lost and found is in the Old Testament. Remember? I will find the lost. Is that Ezekiel 34? It's this new David in the midst of bad shepherds. It's a promise from the Old Testament that in the future, God will send a David, great David's greater son, who will be a shepherd and he'll find the lost in the midst of shepherds not going out and finding the lost. So this lost and found thing is in verses 4 through 7. It's also in verses 8 through 10. It's also in verses 11 through 32. And it finds its theological taproots in the Old Testament itself. But we have something new here. We have a light, a lamp, a candle. We want to say in our day a flashlight or or a phone with a flashlight. No, we're not going to say that. We're just going to say a light, a candle. We have light bearing. And we have something that's lost as being found. Where does this concept of light bearing for the salvation of sinners, where does that first occur in the Bible? On the lips of Jesus in Luke 15, 8 through 10. No. The messianic promises of the Old Testament predict one who would be a light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. To some from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. So this light bearing that occurs here, it has its roots in the Old Testament. Now, what is its meaning in light of the culture of the day and the Old Testament? Here's, what I, here's my stab at it, okay? Jesus is seeking and finding lost sinners. That's what they had a problem with. Lost sinners are of value to God due to being made in His image. Though fallen, they're still image bearers, and the lost sinners that He finds ends up being elect sinners from before the foundation of the world. They are lost in a world of darkness... Jesus brings light to dark places, finds sinners in darkness, and brings light to them and actually brings them home to God. That's what verses 4 through 7 are about. That's what verses 8 through 10 were about. And if, and if Jesus wasn't all about that, we wouldn't be here today. The revelatory light of Christ and the message about him comes to sinners in darkness, comes to lost coins in darkness. 
Keats says, sinners cannot be found by mere natural light or by the light in all men, but by a supernatural light, which is signified by an artificial light, that of a lamp. Huh. So Jesus is signifying spiritual things by physical or carnal things. And the answer to that is, of course he is. What does the lamp signify? The light that comes, the revelation. He's the, re- he's the torchbearer of, of, of the final revelation of God. Christ finds sinners in darkness and rescues them from such. Just as coins don't jump out of dark cracks so their owners can find them, so it goes with us lost sinners. Light must come and we must be found by the light bearer. We must be picked up by the light bearer. We must be brushed off by the light bearer and put in a different place by the light bearer than we were before. The ten coins probably refers to mankind originally created in the image of God but now lost in sin. The one coin signifies the elect of all ages found by the Savior. Well, Jesus gives a commentary in verse 9. Here's what he says. This is a commentary on the woman who found her coin. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Sounds like verses 4 through 7, doesn't it? There are some very similar words here. She finds the lost coin. Jesus finds all his elect sheep. She calls her friends and neighbors to rejoice with her, for she found the lost. Friends probably refers to saints on the earth. Neighbors probably refers to, uh, signifies angels. So we have angels in heaven, saints on the earth rejoicing when a coin, I mean an elect sinner, is found by Christ. Jesus' point is this, if rejoicing is appropriate when a woman finds a lost coin, and it is, if rejoicing is appropriate when when a literal woman finds a literal lost coin, how much more so when Jesus saves sinners, which is what he came to do, and yet the Pharisees and scribes complain about his methods and actions. These guys are jacked up. They're way wrong. This is what self-righteousness does to people. It blinds, further blinds them to the truth of their own putrid, darkened state and the glory and the power and the love and the mercy and the kindness and the patience of God in Christ. Jesus' conclusion finally is in verse 10. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Verse 10 is a sort of commentary by Jesus on what he just said. His conclusion ends up being pointed primarily at the Pharisees and scribes and anybody who might be Pharisaical and scribinic. That is, have the same attitudes as they do, misunderstanding the Old Testament, misunderstanding the Incarnation, misunderstanding the Messianic mission, misunderstanding the plight and the putridity of their own hearts, and basically saying, I don't need Jesus. I'm fine. 
I got my religion, or whatever. Notice that he ends Act 2 of this parable with similar words as he ended Act 1. However, he leaves off these words. Then over 99 just persons who need no repentance. He didn't say that here. He said that earlier in verse 7. Do you think we can kind of carry it over, though, that he didn't say it because he already said it? And if the Pharisees and scribes were following, they would have connected the dots. That's the way I understand it. In essence, he says, even heaven rejoices when the lost are found by the Son of God, but you complain, you grumble, therefore, you need repentance. You need to think otherwise about yourself, about God, about Christ, about grace, about everything. Uh, By the time you read the entire New Testament, you'll get words like this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, right? Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Sinners, though created in the image of God, fallen in sin and walking around in the dark, blind, deaf, dumb, lame, mangled, scarred, shattered, guilty sinners. Our Lord came on a mission and our Lord will accomplish his mission. Our Lord has all power and authority. He will bring many sinners, some from every tribe and uh, tongue and kindred and nation, into the safe presence of God. I think that's what he's talking about here. Uh, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. This man, this man, receives sinners and eats with them. Don't you want to like punch a Pharisee in the nose? Dudes, your salvation is standing in your midst. One there is above all others, well deserves the name of friend. His is love beyond a brother's, costly free and knows no end. They who once his kindness prove find it everlasting love. Which of all our friends to save us could or would have shed his blood, but our Jesus died to have us reconciled in him to God. This was boundless love indeed. Jesus is a friend in need. We're going to sing it, so I'm not going to read all the the words there. I think that's the gist of what's going on here. Now, what I'd like to do in the rest of the time here, which is really brief, and then in the second hour, is to draw out some contemplations, theological contemplations. What do we see here in verses 4 through 10? Not just 8 through 10, but 4 through 10. We see the same things, similar things at least in both sections. We see the fall into sin. I think Jesus assumes that man's not in the same condition he was when he came directly from the hand of his maker. Adam and Eve were created morally upright, but all of us since then have sought out evil devices. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Adam was the first sinner. He fell short of something he didn't have by virtue of his created state, 
But he was created morally upright with original righteousness, with a law written on his heart, with the ability to both comply with God's demands and sin. How do we know that? They sin, right? I think the fall into sin is talked about here. Lost sheep, lost coin. We're going to get to lost son. Both the lost sheep and the lost coin illustrate the effects of the fall into sin upon human nature. Something none of us by nature, just by virtue of being and being sustained by God, can come to a right conclusion all by ourselves. We don't just sit there in a dark room and go, man, I am totally depraved. I'm this, I'm that, and the other. That requires help, capital H. We're wandering in a dark place, a wilderness, unable to find our way back to God. So what does God do? He comes down and he gets us. The world of unbelief is the domain of darkness. Paul, Colossians 1, ruled by the prince of darkness and father of lies who has his claws and fangs in all unbelievers, elect or non-elect. We're dead in trespasses and sins. I think this passage illustrates this. When he came to, that's the next section, when the son came to his senses, What's that? Well, he was dead, and then he became alive by grace. We'll see that. We're unable to subject ourselves to the law of God. We cannot please God. We are actually under his wrath. We are living in the world without God. We are living without a Christ, without a Messiah, without a mediator, and with no hope when we're lost. You remember Charles Wesley's famous words. I think he was right. And his... His worship is better than his theology on paper. But listen as he thinks rightly. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. We are prisoners. We are fast bound in darkness, blind, deaf, dumb, lame, and unable to help ourselves. Listen to Paul in verse 17 of chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles, the unbelieving world walk. No longer, that means this is how Christians used to walk, okay? And this is how all non-believers are currently walking, which means their way of life. In the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. That's a description of the Christians before their Christian status. So that's therefore a description, to varying degrees, of all non-believers. Everybody in their sin is, is, is described that way by Scripture. And there are other places as well. Uh, is there a place where man is called a maggot? I think so. Job or one of the King James Version or whatever. I remember hearing a story one time where John Gershner was lecturing. And he says, um, men are like rats. They're dastardly. They're terrible creatures. And fallen into sin. And some lady during the Q&A says, I I demand that you retract that statement. Men are created in the image of God. He says, you're right. 
They're worse than rats. This side of the fall into sin was his point. And this is one thing we, we have to realize, and that realization of my, my troubled state, it's by grace, it's by light coming, but we have to come to that point. Unless you feel your need for him, you won't come to him because you don't need him. If you don't need him, you're a Pharisee and a scribe. Okay? You're not one of the sinners and tax collectors because most likely these were believers as far as we can tell. And certainly the disciples that were there were believers. But you have to come to that recognition, that realization. And, and we'll see the son in the third act of this parable comes to that point. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom the Apostle Paul called himself among whom I am chief. And if you have come to our Lord Jesus Christ, you will find in him a sweetness of grace, mercy, tender, loving, kindness. Matter of fact, one of the theological contemplations is we see the mercy of God in these, these stories. So cling to him, stick with him, love him, read his word, pray, confess your sins. Every day, keep believing. Um, don't stop believing. Duh. We have a wonderful Savior who's come into a dark place to pluck us from the fires, as it were, from the darkness of our own sins and guilt. And he's going to bring us to glory. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray you burn it into our heads and hearts that you would change minds, that people that don't think they need Jesus and all that he does for sinners would go directly to him with all their guilt and shame and sins and filth and blackness and soot to be cleansed. Thank you for such a wonderful Savior. Thank you for parables that open up the incarnation, the benefits that come to us, and illustrate wonderful truths. Help us now to sing in thankfulness for your mercy and grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.